Hello, it is Everybody Settle Down, Episode 8. I'm Charlie Marlowe. That is Eric Messersmith. And we have some breaking news. How about this? Right before we're getting ready to record, Eric, you send me the link. Mitch McConnell stepping down from his leadership position in the Senate for the Republicans. So how will you, first of all, how you doing? But also, how will you remember the Mitch McConnell era? Uh, doing great, Charlie. Well, look, it's it's historic. I mean, he is he is the longest serving uh, leader of a party in Senate history, which is pretty amazing. Uh, it's been around two decades. I think it was late in George W. Bush. I'll have to check. But he's been a senator for 40 years, but he's been the leader. For all, almost two decades, I think so. It's, it's, it's a historic. He's been a historic figure for better or worse, depending on your political leanings. Um, over the last 20 years, he's been one of the key figures in the fights. Uh, I would say the way I will remember Mitch McConnell is potentially the last of a dying breed, which is the old school Republican establishment figure. He is like the avatar for that. And it's clear that he hates Trump and Trump hates him. I mean, everybody knows that he has become kind of the de facto leader in Congress of the old school pushback against Trump wing. And it hasn't gone very well for him for the most part, because what you have seen is the party has purged itself of the people like Mitch McConnell. They've either lost in primaries or general elections or just retired. And the old school conservatives, and I want to be clear on this, because from a policy standpoint, and I say this about Haley and Trump, and I think the same applies to McConnell and Trump, there's not a huge gap between you know the policies that Trump and his MAGA wing prefer and the policies that McConnell prefer. But there is some gap, and that gap often centers around foreign policy and America's place in the world, and you see it right now with Ukraine. McConnell's one of the old school, and I, this is where I am, people who think America should work to encourage democracy around the world, not with U.S. troops, but with money and arms, and we should help fight people like Putin in Ukraine by sending the Ukrainians arms and that America, the world's a better place when America leads. And that's that's kind of at odds with the America first MAGA movement. So McConnell in some ways could be seen as kind of the last, one of the last of that breed, at least in, in that position of power. And he had the power and he controlled the Senate Republicans for a long time. And that's starting to slip. And you saw that with Ukraine. You've seen people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley younger guns in the Senate who are more aligned with the MAGA movement, openly calling him out and, and calling for new leadership. He was challenged after the last election. He still won, but he was challenged within the Republican conference. Also, side note, just like Biden and Trump, he's really old. As he mentioned in his speech today, he just turned 82. He obviously had the health issues where he froze up in public a couple of times last year. So this isn't just the party's changing and he's with the old faction. It's also, he's been around a long time. He's got a lot of enemies. He's really old. Um, in terms of what he did, I will say this about Mitch McConnell. He was a voice of reason. You know, a few weeks ago on this, I, I talked about how, quoting the line from Succession, that Republicans in the House are not serious people. The MAGA hardcore, I'm not talking about every Republican in the House. I mean, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the, the House Freedom Caucus people, the people who have now the a lot of power within the party and kind of march to Donald Trump's orders. They're not serious about governing. They're more burn the house down and we'll deal with the consequences later. That was not Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell stood in opposition to that. And most of the time, 
Mitch McConnell won those fights. Most of the time, he avoided the crazy stuff, the government shutdowns, the defaults on our debt. He was the set one of the central players negotiating the deals that avoided those things most of the time. And he's trying continuing to do that now. Also, on some of the bipartisan things that have passed under the Biden administration, the Chips and Science Act, the transportation bill, McConnell was one of the Republicans, the 10 to 20 Republicans that voted for those things. On the other hand, I mean, he was a partisan, right? One of probably his most lasting legacy is the Supreme Court. You know, people talk about Trump getting the, the three justices on the Supreme Court. But Mitch, that would not have happened without Mitch McConnell, because if you recall, Antonin Scalia died when Barack Obama was president. He died suddenly. And it was in the last year of Obama's term. And McConnell was the Senate majority leader. And he just said, I'm not going to hold a hearing for Merrick Garland, who's now the attorney general, who was Obama's choice to replace Scalia. He said, I'll wait and see what happens in the election. And of course, what happened? Trump won the next year that the Senate approved and confirmed Neil Gorsuch. So you replace Scalia with another conservative when it would have been Merrick Garland, a liberal. And then a few years later, you had a similar situation when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in the final year of Trump's term. And this time McConnell flipped and he said, no, I am going to hold a hearing. And they very quickly pushed through and confirmed Amy Coney Barrett, which flipped that seat from a liberal justice to a conservative. And that led to, a few years later, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, among other conservative decisions. So whether you agree or disagree with that outcome, there is no no one other than maybe arguably Donald Trump who is more influential in shaping a conservative major, majority on the court than Mitch McConnell. So he gets credit or blame for that, depending on how you look at it. Now, to be fair to him, he did make the distinction that in 2008, you had, uh, you know, you had divided government. And in 2020, you had you had a Senate and a White House of the same party. So, you know, however you view that, I will say this. In general, I think McConnell was a stabilizing figure, but I think the one my biggest beef with him personally is after January 6th on that day. He was great. He, He was one of the people who came back and gave a fiery speech on the Senate floor late that night, like at two in the morning on January 7th, after the rioters have been cleared out and said, basically said, you're not going to stop us from doing what we need to do to move forward. We're not going to let, you know, the rioters win, essentially. And they they certified the election results. And he was rightly very critical of Trump. But when it came to the impeachment a few weeks later, it was close. Like, there were, I think, seven Republicans that voted to convict him in the Senate. And if McConnell would have come out hard for conviction and tried to persuade other people, you may have gotten there. You may have gotten to the 67 votes, which is what you needed to convict Trump. But what would that have meant? That would have meant that he could not run again in 2024. And we could have avoided the prospect of having another Donald Trump presidency. And McConnell, in his speech, said, I'm not going to vote for conviction, but He's guilty is basically what he said. I mean, I think his, his his line was he's morally responsible for what happened on January 6th. His actions essentially led to it, and he probably should be convicted, but I'm not going to vote to convict him. And we all know why he didn't, because he didn't want to take the gamble as the leader of the Republican Party to be on the losing side of an effort to convict a Republican president in an impeachment trial. He thought that probably would that could 
cost him his job and his power. So that's my biggest criticism of Mitch McConnell is when decisions like that came up where it was his power versus the good of the country, I think he blinked. And and I, I wish he wouldn't have done that in that moment because that would have been the way to keep Trump off the ballot. It's not this Colorado decision of throwing him off the ballot with the 14th Amendment. That's going to be struck down by the Supreme Court. But the way to do it is, is through the political system. And McConnell had a moment there where he could have tried to lead that effort, and he blinked. Don't you think that that was more about decorum? And I say that because I'm thinking along the lines of Ford pardoning Nixon. It was almost like we we know he did this, but for the good of the country, we're going to let him slide. Now, I'm I'm not a Mitch McConnell fan. I wonder, though, if you asked him and if he told you the truth, I think at the time he probably felt Donald Trump's political career was over anyway. Don't you think? Regardless of conviction. And I, I feel like that was OK. I do. He was I think president. he and many other. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I think he and many other Republicans felt that way, and that's one of the reasons they voted to acquit. I think what they actually said, though, was I think McConnell, I don't even remember exactly, but I think his reasoning was, well, Trump is out of office now, and and it would be kind of unprecedented to convict someone of something they did when they're no longer in office. I think that was the justification he used. But really, the honest answer was they thought Trump was done. Trump was at his lowest point. <laughs> Even even like hardcore Republicans, if you recall that moment in history, kind of shook their head and was like, well, that's too much. Like, this is a little bit too far. This guy's pretty toxic. And it, it looked like he was probably done. And I think you're right. That's why they did it. But, of course, you can't assume that. And that's why you should do it based on the merits. And, and the merits were Trump clearly. Again, Criminal liability, which is what he'll hopefully go to trial for later this year, is a different issue, right? I'm not sure about that. I, I'm, I have an open mind. But his crime at base level was political. It was, it was a dereliction of duty. And that was how it should have been handled. The House was right to impeach him. The Senate had a chance to convict him. And Mitch McConnell could have led that effort. He was strong at that point. Trump was weak. And he chose not to do it. And uh, you mentioned the Supreme Court uh, Democrats, will will call it stealing two seats. Now, if you look at it, what <laughs> should have been done, in my opinion, if you're being fair, you just do the same thing each time. So really, it was stealing one seat, because if you're not going to go ahead and confirm Garland, which I'm OK with, but then you can't go ahead and confirm Amy Coney Barrett. You, you have to do it, in my opinion, the same time both parties. So there's obviously one Supreme Court seat that Democrats look upon as being stolen. It, it's funny too, because for Mitch McConnell, he did always come across as this guy who is just in charge. And I was never necessarily a fan of Mitch McConnell's, but it's weird how during the Trump era, there's a lot of things like, there's a lot of Trump's policies that I agree with. What I don't like about the Trump era, what I think has happened to the Republican Party, is what you've mentioned several times about not being serious people and not really governing. So it's kind of funny because I would throw Mitch McConnell in a bucket, and, and I'm, I'm not saying they're all exactly the same, but there's folks like Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney and just like the Bush family, which for years 
you thought were the enemies if you're a Democrat. And then once Trump came along, even if you agree with a lot of Trump's policies, the way he goes about it, and also just the conspiracy theory stuff, the fact that you can never admit you're wrong, the fact that you don't pass legislation that's good for the country just for politics. That's where in the last couple of years, I was kind of like, you know, Mitch McConnell, he's not that bad. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah. McConnell believed in, I think, the base level of what politics is, which is it's the art of the possible. Like if you ever listen to McConnell talk, he would often talk about how can we get a result? I mean, he would literally use words like result. Like who talks like that? He does because that's regardless of political philosophy, what he was interested in is getting as much as he could to advance the agenda that he wanted to advance, which you may agree or disagree with and take the win when you can get it. And that this latest immigration deal was a perfect example. That was Mitch McConnell behind the scenes. He wasn't the one in the room negotiating it. It was James Langford, a conservative senator from Oklahoma. But McConnell picked Langford to do that. And the reason McConnell did that is because he said Biden is unpopular right now. People are pissed at the border. He wants this money for Ukraine, which which Mitch McConnell did, too. I think we can get him to agree to pretty conservative immigration reforms that he never normally would agree to and use the Ukraine aid as leverage. And he was right. Biden was willing to do that. It took months to negotiate, but the Biden administration and the Democrats were willing to agree to things that they were had not previously been willing to agree to, especially for nothing in return when it came to amnesty or legalization status for people here. So McConnell played, as he usually does, his cards perfectly had a deal that would have given him not just what he wanted on Ukraine, but what he wanted on immigration. It wasn't everything that he and Republicans wanted, but it it would have been a big win. And he played that deal. And in years past, he probably would have won. That deal would have probably passed and he would have gotten that result. But he didn't. And the reason he didn't was because Donald Trump came out against it and blocked it. And then everyone in Congress, you know, not everyone, but the conservatives in Congress who support Trump fell in line. And that was a perfect illustration of how the power has shifted. McConnell's old school power of take what we can get, use our leverage and take the deal against Trump's more purity. We're only going to get what we want. And you're right. That is what is leading the Republicans right now especially in the House, but even, as I say, more so in the Senate, is this idea that here's what we want, and we're only going to get a deal if we get 90% plus of what we want. And that's not how our a narrowly divided country like ours worked. And Mitch McConnell, at a fundamental level, understood that, that that's what politics is. You fight like hell, and then you make a deal and you take what you can get. And as people like McConnell leave, what are you left with? You're left with more and more people like Ted Cruz and Mike Lee and Josh Hawley in the Senate and the Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Freedom Caucus and in the House and, and Jim Jordan and people like that. And that's scary. That's one of the things I will say about Trump's first term is Trump was largely to a large degree up until the election of 2020. He was kept in check. And he was kept in check against a lot of his worst instincts by people in his administration, like Bill Barr and General Kelly, these kind of like old school politicians who were seen as respected figures in in the conservative movement. And also Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, who was the Speaker of the House for a while. These were the people that were kind of like, okay, you can go here, but you can't go here. The scary thing about 
and Donald Trump second term, if it happens, is he's not going to he's not going to appoint any of those people like Bill Barr and his administration. And the people like Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan aren't going to be there in the in the in the Congress. And it's going to be more people like Trump and some of the guardrails that were in place for those four years where Trump was president aren't going to be there if he's president again. I think also folks our age look at Mitch McConnell. I don't want to say poster child. First of all, he's very old, but also he's not the number one guy I think of when I think of this. But when he froze up a couple times and the fact that I feel like he's been leading government my entire life, I think he's one of the poster children for these these career politicians stay in power too long. And I could throw a bunch of them at you. And and not all of them have the same senior moments like McConnell, but I would throw Pelosi, Schumer, McConnell, Biden. I feel like, you know, I'm 41 years old. I feel like they've been in politics ever since I've known what politics are. And so folks that stay, <laughs> right, folks that stay too long and literally sometimes die in office or in their seats, like a Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a Dianne Feinstein, where they have to tell her what's going on, Mitch McConnell freezing up, Joe Biden falling down. The fact that we're in our 40s and we feel like everybody, whether it's Trump, whether it's Bernie, whether it's Biden, whether it's Pelosi, Schumer, all these folks are 75 to 80 years old. I feel like McConnell is in that group of people that were like, dude, you've just been doing this way too long. Like, step aside give some other folks, some other generations. How about some other generations of people a chance to lead this country? Yeah, I think there, McConnell actually mentioned that in his speech today about turning it over a new generation. I think there's two ways to look at that, right? The argument against what you're saying, which I, I, I think has some credence, is that Mitch McConnell, take away the freezing in public, right? That was scary. It was related to a fall he had and some seizures. Not a lot of people have argued that he hasn't been, up until very recently, incredibly effective at his job. You know, you may hate Mitch McConnell and you may dislike his policies, but there aren't people who say Mitch McConnell wasn't an effective political operator. I mean, Republican, right. Democrat, everybody said he was the consummate politician in terms of his skill and ability as a politician. Same thing with Nancy Pelosi. Again, agree or disagree. What she was able to get done when she was the speaker, even in her late 70s and, and, and 80 years old, I think she's like 83 now, and she's no longer obviously the leader, but that just changed last year. What she was able to do, whether you liked her or not, nobody disagreed with her ability. With Biden, it seems like it's a little bit different, right? Because although he's been a pretty good president, I think, we we are starting to question his abilities, especially as it comes to a campaigner you know, if not in his day-to-day -day job. So I think having people in Congress a long time is not in and of itself bad. What is, because, and in fact, it can be good because it what it does is the presidency has become so powerful. If you go back through American history, it wasn't always this way. The presidency over time, Republican and Democrat, have taken more and more power. And you need a strong Congress to, to balance that out. That's what our system's based on. Checks and balances, three branches of government, co-equal, all with different powers. You, so in order for Congress to really exert those powers, you need people to know what the hell they're doing. You need adults in the room. And Pelosi and McConnell, again, or agree or disagree with their political philosophies, they were that. So I'm, I have no problem with people sticking around for a long time and gaining power and influence. My problem is age. 
And it's not a perfect way to cut it off because there are some people obviously very effective at, at older uh, ages than others. But I think when you get to a certain age that, that you should no longer hold these positions. And I've said before on this, on this podcast, I think 80 to me is when you cut it off. Like you can serve up until you're 80, but the day you turn 80, it's time. You know, and you you can't just leave it to these people to make that decision on their own. Because as you pointed out, you you run into the possibility of a situation like Diane Feinstein, where they're wheeling her onto the Senate floor, you know, literally telling her how to vote. <laughs> and, and just so people know, I was reading the article. So Mitch McConnell stepping down from leadership, but he's not stepping away. He will fulfill his term through 2027, which I think is kind of funny. It's like, I'm probably too old to... Uh, to lead the Senate, <laughs> but I'm still going to be one of 100 I'm senators, be which is kind of funny. Right. Right. Okay. Let's, uh, let's move on here to the, uh, the primaries. We had South Carolina, we had Michigan. I mean, I'm, I'm an idiot. I don't know why I thought, I don't know why I thought somebody like Haley would have a better shot in what I would consider a true purple state now, like, like Michigan, even though it's part of that blue wall, obviously South Carolina being Nikki Haley's home state. So basically Trump 60, Haley 40, I mean, Trump plus 20 in South Carolina, freaking Trump plus 40 in Michigan, what, 68 to 29, basically. So round it up, whatever it is, 39, 40 points. Were you surprised? I guess, you know, we, we talked last week, the primary numbers for South Carolina was plus 23. So Haley did a little bit better, but man. The, the plus 40 in Michigan surprised me. What, what about you? Well, that was that's actually, it was a similar situation. In fact, if you look at the polling averages in pretty much every state, Trump has actually come in under the polling averages, I think, in every state so far. Not by a lot, but by a little. He was actually ahead in the polling average by more than the 40 he ended up winning in Michigan. So in that regard, I wasn't surprised. I think it, here's the thing. We, we've known for a while Trump's going to be the nominee. But what you're looking for is what do these results tell us about a general election? Same thing on the Democrat side, because they had a primary in Michigan as well, which we can talk about in a minute. But on the sticking with the Republicans for a minute, I saw two things in South Carolina and Michigan. In Michigan, Haley only got 27 percent of the vote or so, but it was a pretty big turnout that equated to two hundred and ninety five thousand votes. Now, that's a lot of people when you you could look at it one of two ways. You could say Trump big margin marching to the nomination. And that that's fair. That's accurate. He's also essentially an incumbent president because he literally was the president three years ago running for re-election. So it's not exactly the same situation that Biden's in because he's not an incumbent right now, but he essentially is. Everyone in Michigan knew that when they voted that Donald Trump's going to be the nominee, right? And 27%, 295,000 people still voted for Nikki Haley. So that tells me there is still a lot of resistance among Donald Trump. And we know in Michigan, the margin in 2020 for Biden was 150,000. It was very close. Haley got almost 300,000 votes. Where do those 300,000 people go? Some of them obviously will go home to Trump. But there's a lot of resistance to Trump, even though he's the de facto nominee. And I think that you're going to see that on Super Tuesday, too, where Haley will get 30, 40 percent in a lot of these states. There's 15 or 16 states. And she may even be able to win a state like Vermont or Maine or Massachusetts, one of these kind of liberal blue states. She might be able to win uh, with an open primary, one or two of those. 
Where do those people go? And here is the second thing I want to point out. This is, and this relates to the first point. I saw this on a CNN exit poll from South Carolina. They asked Nikki Haley voters, who again were 40% of the Republican primary vote. So we're talking about a huge number of people. What is Donald Trump fit for the presidency if he's convicted of a crime? 82% of Haley voters said no. Now, do I think 82% of the people who voted for Nikki Haley in the South Carolina primary are going to vote for Joe Biden or stay home? No, I don't. A lot of those 82% will ultimately go to Trump when it becomes a binary choice, especially in a state like South Carolina, but some of them won't. And that number, and we're talking, we know who we're talking about here. We're talking about the same people Trump has struggled with before, suburban women, college-educated whites. Will they either stay home or vote for Biden? I think a big chunk of them will. Now, will it be enough for Biden to win? I don't know. But that is why the Haley candidacy should worry you if you're the Trump campaign, even though you won by 40 points. And I guess my thinking is or was, and I'll be the first to mention, I think people will know, I'm, I'm not looking ahead and, and, and seeing what all these polling numbers are for all the states, but I have looked at some, and it's more of the general election stuff. We've talked about this with Wisconsin, where more so the Biden versus Haley, Biden versus Trump, where Haley does a lot better in a state like Wisconsin, which is a lot like Michigan, a lot like Pennsylvania. So I, I guess what this shows us, though, is even though in a general election where you do have a lot of independents, a lot of people in the middle that look for, for both reasons this this time, they think Biden, you know, you might be a Democrat, but you think Biden is too old. You don't like the way the Democrats are handling the border or you're a Republican, but you really think that Donald Trump tried to overturn the election which a lot of people do. I guess this shows us, though, that that's a whole different conversation than specifically primary voters and Republican primary voters. That's a totally different conversation. Yeah, I think so. I think, and that's why it's so hard to predict and it's hard to make any declarative statements. Are there warning signs for Trump from these results? Absolutely. On the other hand, National polling shows him ahead of Biden. I think the average right now, is, it varies, but between one and two points, a slight lead, which means he's also most likely ahead in states like Michigan and the key battleground states with eight months to go. The primary tea leaves for Biden, there's also some concern there in, in Michigan. He got 81% of the vote with a pretty decent turnout. So again, just like Trump, he won easily, but uncommitted got 13%. Which was which was a hundred and one thousand votes, and again I mentioned that margin. It was a hundred and fifty in twenty twenty. So just over a hundred thousand people in the Democratic primary voted uncommitted. Three percent voted for Dean Phillips. Three percent voted for Marianne Williamson, who's not even in the race. So if you add that all together, that's not, although I think she did announce today she's she's unsuspending her campaign to get back in the race because that's just what we need in twenty twenty four. Marianne Williamson. So that would be, if you add that up, uncommitted Williamson and Phillips, that's 19%. So roughly 20% of the electorate um, of the Democratic side. There was, a, and, and we know why that is. It mainly, it was an organized campaign because of the war in Israel and Biden's perceived support for the Netanyahu government and Israelis, Israel's action in Gaza. That's what that's about. Michigan has a very high, compared to other states, Arab American Muslim population. They overwhelmingly are Democrats, and they are mad as hell about the Biden administration's policy toward Gaza. And it's one of the reasons that young people in general in polls 
are not supporting Biden in anywhere near the numbers that they have in the past. And it's a major concern for him. Of course, I will say if you're looking to spin it positively for Biden, I saw this in 2012, Barack Obama, also an incumbent Democratic president, also running without real opposition in the Michigan primary, 10 percent of Democrats in that primary in 2012 voted uncommitted. So 10 percent voted uncommitted for Obama in 2012 when he had no opposition. There was no war raging in Israel, the Arab American. There was no organized effort to to launch an uncommitted campaign and 10 percent still voted uncommitted for Biden. It was 13. So when you look at it that way, it actually probably is an underwhelming number considering people like Rashida Tlaib, who's a Democratic congressman, uh, congresswoman from Michigan, and others came out in support of this uncommitted as a protest against Biden. When you factor that into the equation, it's probably actually a little bit better than than you would have imagined in terms of the low how low uncommitted came in. But it is a major concern because in most states, the Arab American population, the people who really care about what's going on and in Gaza and think the Israeli government has gone too far won't make a difference. But in Michigan, of course, it could, because we know Michigan is likely to be close. We know that there's a strong percentage of Arab American and Muslim American voters in that district. And we know that they're not Trump voters. They're either going to vote for Biden or they're not going to vote at all, or they're going to vote for a third party like Jill Stein or Cornell West or RFK Jr. And so how those people vote may decide the election and how Biden continues to evolve in how he handles the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is going to be one of the critical things to watch over the next eight months. Because if you believe that young people in general and Arab and Muslim Americans are going to stay home or going to vote third party, then Biden's probably toast. Because Michigan may decide the election. But if you believe at the end of the day, and I, I think I lean a little bit more toward this side at the moment, at the end of the day, when the choice is real and, and it's no longer a protest, it's now time to decide and it's Biden and Trump. I just have a hard time believing that a large number of young people aren't going to vote for Biden. Maybe I'm wrong. I certainly if 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 things in Gaza look as dire as in eight months as they do now, I very well may be wrong. But if not, then I think that's kind of the optimistic view if you're the Biden people. And and by the way, so I saw this clip. I didn't know it was with Seth Meyers, but uh, maybe this is also just Biden being too old. He's got to stop talking about serious topics while he's eating ice cream cones. Okay. I know he likes to eat ice cream. We all who, like who to eat doesn't? ice cream. Right. And by the way, I, I get it. You should be able to go have your ice cream. It's a joke and all that. But if then somebody asks you a serious question about the ceasefire in Gaza, you also need either he should do this or, or somebody next to him. Hey, Joe, real quick. Now, it's one thing if somebody goes, hey, who do you like in the Super Bowl? You can lick your ice cream cone and go, hey, I like the Chiefs. But if some, <laughs> right? But if somebody says, hey, what do you think? Is there going to be a ceasefire in Gaza? I'm sorry. It's just a terrible optic. You need to put the ice cream cone down. You need to hand it to somebody. You need to step towards the <laughs> photographer reporter and answer the question. It's just when I saw that, I go, does, does anybody have any feel? Does anybody have any feel? Right. This guy, he makes a lot of mistakes. You can't lick the ice cream cone and hold the ice cream cone and talk about a war going on in Gaza. You just can't do that. 
it reminds me of the George W. Bush. Do you remember that where he, where he was like he's on the golf course and yes. he's, he's like everybody needs to step up and we need to kill the terrorists and he's he's ma- you know he's making the serious comment about terrorism. This was after 9/11. And that's the clip we saw on the news. But the cameras of course kept rolling and the clip we saw later, which I think first came out in that uh, Michael Moore documentary. But but yes. now is widely circulated. So Bush is standing there on the golf course talking about this, and then he pauses. He's like, "We good? Now let me hit, let me hit show you how to hit this drive." And he, he swings a drive, and and you know he's a pretty good golfer. He makes you know good contact. But still, of course, that looked bad. And you're right. The content of what Biden said in that ice cream impromptu ice cream thing was fine, and it was also fine. By the way, I, it might have been the question before that. They asked him about going to the border. And he's licking the ice cream and he's like, yeah, I'm going down Thursday, which is um, the day after we're recording this. And I hear my good friend's going to be there, too, obviously making a joke about Trump. And I thought that was fine. He's joking about Trump. And then they're like, oh, yeah, what do you think about this terribly serious situation where, you know, innocent civilians are dying and people are starving to death? And one of our allies is fighting in a war against a terrorist organization. And he's like, oh, I think we'll have a ceasefire by the end of the week. And I'm just. You're right. The, op- the the content of what he said was fine. The optics look bad and optics matter. And it's it goes back to what we said before. Everybody's watching. Everybody's watching these critical months for Biden and Harris. He's obviously going to be, you know, going to win the primaries. He's got a few months. And if he performs okay, then the these questions about replacing him are going to die down. But if he has senior moments or he does things that look bad, or he's stumbling around and fumbling his words, and he's still behind in the polls, these calls for him to be replaced at the convention are going to grow louder and louder. And he, he's he got to go. And I'm glad he did the Seth Meyers. I saw some clips of it. I thought he was fine. He he put they you know he put on the glasses and joked about the dark Brandon thing. And, and I thought it showed Biden in a favorable light. But that was a softball interview. We all know, if you, well, I think most people probably know, if you even know who he is. Seth Meyers is extremely liberal. I mean, extremely liberal. Not a fan of Trump. That was an easy softball late night interview. I, and that's fine. Biden should do, do those. He should do those softball interviews. But he also needs to, I don't know, sit with the New York Times, sit with the Wall Street Journal editorial board, do an interview with NBC. He doesn't have to go on Fox News or Newsmax or Tucker or do it sit down with Tucker Carlson. I'm not saying that. But what he should do is media that is widely perceived to be mainstream that will push him a little bit. He needs to do those interviews as well as Seth Meyers. Yeah, and I didn't see the whole Seth Meyers clip. I'm also I didn't see the whole interview. I just saw the ice cream part. But uh, I'm going to come to the defense of uh, George W. Bush here, because as a person who you know, I've been in the media for for 20 years, George W. Bush would never have done that now because the media rightfully so had a little more respect back then where they knew what he was doing. Right. He was golfing and he came over. He gave them a comment, but he knew this is what, 20 years ago, whatever it was, Mm -hmm. probably. Yeah. Right around 20, a little more. He, he knew right there, my comments done. They got their quote. I'm going to hit my drive. But in doing that, he never thought it was going to get out. So nowadays right. you wouldn't do that. Everybody's gotcha. I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. So, okay, let's, let's move on. No, you're on right. Here. And that's a good point about how the media has changed. And I, I want to, I want to stand with your comments. I do not fault George W. Bush at all for that, 
because we yeah. all as human beings flip back and forth between serious and funny all the time, right? It's why people laugh at funerals. If you've ever, I mean, mm -hmm. we that's what we do as human beings. It's, there's nothing wrong with flipping back between serious and funny. What's wrong is if it gets caught on camera and it, it's, it looks weird and it's presented in a way that isn't flattering. And so I don't blame him for doing that. And for Biden, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with what he did. It just looked bad, right? Because again, yeah. as you said, who among us does not enjoy ice cream? I mean, come on. I don't know if I'd pick plain vanilla like he does, but yeah. Okay, a couple minutes ago, you talked about Trump's issues with suburban women. So this idea of of what's going on in Alabama with the IVF. And then we started this whole podcast talking about Mitch McConnell and the Supreme Court justices, which eventually led to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And I hate to present it like this and saying, this is the Democrats' best issue, because it, it sounds weird. You're almost celebrating something that's very, very controversial. It's a, it's a, a very tough decision for people to make. But this is the thing that keeps happening. This is an issue that, the people are much more aligned with the Democrats. So if folks don't know, in Alabama, there was this, this pause there because with IVF, you have these, they're called extra uterine children. So it's the embryos and it's the discussion over the disposal, uh, discarding these unused embryos. And are those considered people? So, so not only that, but then if you go back to what happened in Texas, and a lot of people know about that case, it was this Kate Cox. She she had a planned pregnancy. She she was already a mother. She didn't want to have an abortion, but she had basically a non-viable um, fetus within her body and had to leave the state of Texas. Look, man, you know, pro-choice versus pro-life. I, I understand both sides of that issue. But with what I just mentioned with the IVF stuff, everybody has multiple friends and family members that have struggled with, with fertility and gone through IVF. And the things I mentioned with IVF in Alabama and this Kate Cox deal in Texas, this is stuff that is not 50-50 at all. You know, people, people see this and they go, this is crazy, man. This is nuts what, what some of these states and, and some of these Christian conservative legislators are going after. This is something that the country is so much more aligned with Democrats than Republicans. And even somebody like Trump comes out and he says, we got to protect IVF. Well, look, you know, it's your Supreme Court that caused this, right? Right. Isn't that, that fair? Opened the, it's, it's his Supreme Court decision, um, the justices he appointed that opened the door for this, opened yes. the door for the possibility that a crazy majority on a state Supreme Court, like you saw in Alabama, could say that an embryo is life, a baby, therefore essentially allowing for this pause. Because now the, the IVF clinics are like, wait a minute, if this Supreme Court ruling says these are babies, then it's technically possible that we could be criminally or civilly liable for discarding these embryos, which happens in IVF because what they do in IVF is they don't just make one embryo. They make a bunch because some of them don't make it. Some of them aren't viable. They implant several, which is why sometimes people with IVF end up having uh, two or three babies instead of one. A and so it's a natural part of IVF that embryos will be destroyed. 
And if you believe that that the embryo is equivalent to life and a child, then it the logic, I guess, does flow that they should be treated, an embryo should be treated the same way. Now, of course, the vast majority of people do not believe that. The Even pro-life people have come out and made what I think is the clear distinction, which is what makes an embryo a potential life isn't only the embryo, because if you put it in a lab, it's not going to grow into a baby in nine months. It has to be implanted into the mother. That is what begins the process of life. And you've heard a lot of Republicans kind of make that argument now because they know what you're saying, which is politically, this looks terrible for them. So they are bending, and Alabama, I'm sure, is going to pass a law, the Republican legislature, the Republican governor, to make it clear that IVF treatment in the state is off limits. And I wouldn't be surprised if nationally you see Republicans in the House try to do something as well, because they know how bad this looks for them. And you're right, abortion is the biggest issue, the the worst issue for Republicans this year and the best issue for Democrats. It's one of the reasons that in 2022, Democrats exceeded expectations in that election. It's one of the reasons that in a lot of special elections since then, Democrats have done very well is because people are with them on that issue. And you know, the Biden-Harris campaign is going to make a huge issue of their at a huge focus of their what's going to be a massive ad campaign which hasn't really started yet is going to be on this issue and they're going to be reminding people every day between you know june and election day that donald trump appointed the three supreme court justices who voted to overturn roe and led us down this path on the other hand i think the worst issue for democrats is immigration and it was a similar situation played out this week when you saw the real world consequences of bad judgment on the Republican yeah. side. It was this judgment by the Alabama Supreme Court. You've talked about an IVF on the immigration issue. The bad judgment is the failed border policies of the Biden administration for the last three years. And what I'm talking about is that 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 nursing student who was killed on the campus of the University of Georgia, killed by allegedly an illegal immigrant who had a previous criminal history in the United States and should have been deported and was not. And the reason that he wasn't is because the Biden administration has been letting people who claim asylum, uh, paroling them into the interior of the United States. And that is a decision they have made. And that decision helped lead to this, you know, allegedly this, this terrible crime and this young woman losing her life. So I think it's interesting that the most vulnerable issue for both parties has in the last week you have seen a real world example of that coming home in a really profound negative way that of course the other side has used as a political issue that's a great point though what you said about the immigration with this student who was murdered and i thought about that exact thing you you have a kid i have kids there are real world consequences to these policies. And I was thinking about that. Look, I've said a million times on this podcast, I think Joe Biden has been very, very bad on the border. That can be true. And also Republicans should have passed this bill, which would improve it. And that's where I think, you know, if I was a politician and I didn't vote for that bill, or, you know, obviously Trump doesn't want you to vote for it. I, I would go to bed at night after reading that story, that horrific story. And, and what you said is 100% true. This murder most likely could have been prevented. 
And and what if there's another murder, whatever it is, another crime, two, three years from now, and it's somebody who maybe could have been kept out of the United States from, you know, a month ago until the election. I mean, that, that's a real world consequence. We talk about politics and strategy, but again, Biden, so sure everybody knows, Biden sucks on the border, but they should also pass this bill. And man, yes. if I was a congressperson and and if three years from now there's a similar story of a, a person getting murdered and it was an illegal immigrant who came over the border in July of this year, I would I I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. So that's where we talk about this with strategy, but you made a great point of of these real world consequences coming out of these policies. And and that's the most disappointing thing about the the politics of the moment. Look, politicians of there's always been politicians and there always will be who look out for their own personal interests and their and their reelection. But you do hope that at a certain point, most of them would be willing to try to, as I said earlier, to quote Mitch McConnell, get a result. Don't let the perfect be the enemy good of the good. And on immigration, both parties have the stain of not being able to come together to try to solve this problem. I would say over time, to be fair, it's more on the Republican side, because when there when there was a chance in the George W. Bush administration, the Barack Obama administration, when there were bipartisan efforts, they were killed by Republicans. And that happened again with Biden's bill. But you're right. Just because that is true, that history, that doesn't get Biden off the hook for three years of really ineffective policy. You came into office and you didn't like the immigration policies of Donald Trump, mainly remain in Mexico, which was the policy where people claiming asylum had to wait in in the Mexican side of the border in these like tent cities where it was kind of squalor conditions. You didn't like that. You didn't think that was right. Fine. You changed it. Fine. Come better or different or effective. And that was that's my my critique of Biden. Yes, you did try to put together a comprehensive immigration bill that went nowhere. Yes, you did, you know, you didn't like the policy of the Trump administration. But you've had three years and you know what's going to in the coming weeks. There's already been reporting that the Biden administration is going to do something. We don't know exactly what, but they're going to, through executive order, make it harder to stay in the country, claim asylum, really try to crack down on this massive flow of you know illegal migrants we're seeing. They're going to do they're going to do something in the coming weeks, which will totally illustrate to everybody that they've essentially been lying over the last three years. They're like, well, there's nothing we can do. Congress has to act. Right. No, you can. Both things are true. You can do things on your own to help, but the problem will never be totally solved until we change the law and there's legislation. So at this point, the die's already been cast on a lot of this for Biden. I think the best he can do, and he's going to the border on Thursday, we're recording this on Wednesday, the best thing he can do at this point is say, look, my administration's going to enact some, some executive action here to limit this the numbers here. We're going to try to make this as good as we can through executive action. But to fix it permanently, we need legislation. I support this legislation. It's the Republicans and it's Donald Trump that's blocking it. That is, I think, the best argument Biden has to make you know, at this point. Okay, Bob Costas. I think it's the uh, second show in a row we're talking about uh, Bob Costas. At first, it was from uh, Bill Maher. 
And he said similar comments. This was uh, Michael Smirkanish on uh, CNN. And so here's the here's the quote that uh, people are calling it uh, the deplorables type quote and all that. So here it is. Quote, you have to be in the throes of some sort of toxic delusion and in a toxic cult to believe that Donald Trump has ever been in any sense emotionally, psychologically, intellectually, or ethically fit to be president of the United States. He added, but his supporters are locked in on that. So obviously, right-wing media, they're jumping on the, the delusion and the cult aspect and basically saying you're, you're calling all Trump supporters members of a cult. And I understand how we do this for political points and all that. So look, and then he goes on. This is the second time also. He's not a Biden guy. He wants Biden to to step aside. And and this is my real issue has always been with with Trump and his supporters. Again, there's a lot of policy points that I agree with Donald Trump, but it is about the crazy conspiracy theories. And hey, some of them are proven to be true. Some of them, but the election being stolen, everything is rigged. Any election Donald Trump loses was rigged. Anyone he wins, it's all good. I just, I can't, I can't do that. I, again, I think he did some good things. I think overall he was a good president, but that's the part I think a lot of people, not just January 6th and overturning the election, that's the big part, but just convincing these people that everything he says is true. And I think a lot of people actually believe that. Others, I think they know it's false, but they still think Trump is a better option right. than Biden. They think Biden is so bad, so old, and so bad on the border, they don't even care. But this is the part, again, just never being too able to admit you lost, always lying about everything. I, I just hate that stuff. I agree. And the reason Costas's comments are bad is because, A, they're inaccurate, as you mentioned, because the, the, for the reason of they cast a wide brush. And you just laid out all the different ways that someone could arrive at supporting Trump. It's more than just a cultish devotion to him, although there are some people that have that. There are lots of other ways you could get there, right? Lesser of two evils. Biden's too old. How about I'm just a conservative? I'm just a conservative person. I want conservative policies, and I don't care about the character of the person who gets that for me. That's what I want. So you could arrive at a vote for Donald Trump in a lot of different ways. And that's why the deplorables thing that Hillary Clinton said, this comment by Costas, is, is A, inaccurate, but B, it's not helpful. Like, what does Costas want? It's clear that he does not want Donald Trump to be the president, right? We know that. He has made that explicitly clear. If that is your goal, to, to not have Donald Trump be the president, saying things like this make that, I mean, you know, it depends how much credence you give to Costas's credibility, but but it makes people less likely to come to your side. So A, it's inaccurate, but B, it's not an effective way of persuasion to say, oh, you disagree with me, you're stupid or naive or in a cult, right? Now, all of that said, part of the hallmark of our politics in 2024 is a cult-like following for your team. I would, yes, cult may be a bit too strong. I would say more like fandom with sports teams. It's it's the blind. If you if you watch a game or with someone who is a hardcore fan of someone, or you are yourself who is like really, I'm talking about someone who's emotionally into it who's screaming, who's yelling at the TV. What, what is the hallmark of that fan? Well, what, how do they feel about referees? Every call that's questionable that goes against them, they're getting screwed. And every call that's questionable that goes for them is the right call. Why? 
Is it because they're dumb? No, it's because they're biased. They, they have something that is overriding their judgment that's innate. And that fandom, that tribal instinct, that cult devotion, whatever term you want to use, is a hallmark of our politics on both the left and the right. I will say, I think it is more evident in the Trump side. And, and for reasons you pointed out, the amount of people who will defend the most egregious behavior, the, the most outrageous things that Donald Trump says will defend or brush them aside, shows you a devotion that is really, really fanatical. I mean, it is. Like, for instance, this no legal issue. Like, if Trump wins a court case, which he does win some, that's fine. But every other court case, every charge he faces, everything is a fraud. It's all part of the deep state, making no distinction between the different charges. As you said, the overturning of the election, that kind of slavish devotion to Donald Trump is a real thing. It's Again, it's not everybody that supports him. It's probably not even a majority of people that support him, but that does exist, and it, it, it exists to a lesser extent on the Democrat side as well, and it's one of the biggest problems with our politics right now. And I would say the theme of this podcast is kind of the Supreme Court, and that's where you, you threw in there one of the reasons to vote for Trump or, or Biden is if you're a conservative or if you consider yourself a liberal. And I understand not liking Biden or Trump, but there are people, there's people in my family and they'll say, look, I don't like Biden and Biden's really old, but I, I hate what this Supreme Court is doing with these women's issues with the Roe v. Wade. And I think it's fair to say we have the most conservative Supreme Court that we've ever had, maybe most political 6-3 court right now. And look, if you're a conservative, you might really like that. Now, you don't have to agree with that, but I can understand why somebody goes, look, I don't love Trump. I don't love Biden, but I am a conservative or I am a liberal and I'm going to vote for R or D for my particular policies. And this is kind of funny. Look, this does 100% happen on both sides. I don't know if you saw the clip. I think it was Jimmy Kimmel sent people out to South Carolina. Did you see this clip? No. By any chance? Okay. No. I'm paraphrasing here, but it's exactly what you said. They basically... and. A lot of different media sites have done this. They say, hey, these are things Joe Biden said. And then the person's like, yeah, that's terrible. Well, there are actually things Trump said. And then <laughs> when they tell me, so, so the woman who's the reporter, she's like, uh, Joe Biden said this. And the woman's like, yeah, that's just, that's terrible. That's awful. And the reporter goes, wait, 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 I'm sorry. I made a mistake. That was actually something said by Donald Trump. And they totally flipped their opinion on the matter, right? All that matter, and by the way, just for everybody watching, I know there's Democrats that do the exact same yep. thing. This is just the thing I saw, but it's so true. And this is this has always been my issue. I truly don't care. I can disagree with you. The hypocrisy is what I hate the most. I hate the hypocrisy when if my guy does it, it's okay, and you you defend it or you try to justify it. When my enemy does it, I go after him. That's what I hate most about our politics is the blatant hypocrisy. Yes. And some of that is inevitable because we're human beings and we all have our biases. And so that's all, some of that's always been there and always will be. I think what is unique now is it is worse than it has ever been. And social media is the, maybe the biggest single contributor to that. The out and in particular, the algorithm, right? Cause it's not just social media. It's the experience you get 
get on social media through the algorithm when you search things, what, what your feed is on X here on YouTube, the, what YouTube has a, a, a very effective algorithm. Anyone knows who, whoever you know, watches things on YouTube that and, and how good these algorithms have gotten for these tech companies is, is a big problem because it leads people into a rabbit hole and there will always be people looking to make money who will feed you whatever it is you want. So if you want to hear that January 6th wasn't really that big of a deal and it was an inside job by the FBI, if you, if you kind of want to believe that, that will be given to you. And you can find that if you want to believe that Trump really didn't try to overturn the election, it was all overblown, which, of course, isn't true. He tried desperately to overturn the election in many ways. There there are people that will give you that. And so what has happened is it has become easier to def to deny reality. In fact, people have always denied reality. In fact, but it used to be harder because people would be like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? But now that algorithm gives you the backing for that as as you know awful as it may be as unfactual as it may be and so you can find that reinforcement and so now people get dug in and so every legal case against donald trump's a witch hunt no matter what it is whether it's the hush money payments to stormy daniels or trying to overturn the election or keeping classified documents it's all the same it's all just everybody's out to get it and it again, it happens on both sides. I want to be clear on that. We could go down the list of things that liberals have said were, you know, not true that were. And there's a long list there. But what I'm saying is it's more severe on the right. And I think with what we've seen with the election, the stakes are higher with what you've seen of it on the right. And, and there's no question that is a major factor. And look, I don't have any good answers for how you combat that. I don't know because the algorithms aren't going to get worse. They're, they're, they're not going to, it's the tech companies with AI, especially they're not going to get worse at feeding you what you want to hear. There's never going to be a shortage of people looking to take money for reinforcing ideas, whether they, uh, whether they believe them or not. And that that's going to get, it's going to continue. And I don't, I don't know what the answer is other than just, you know, try your best in, in your own way to be fair and reasonable. Yeah, I'm very against these algorithms unless they want to pick up everybody settle down on YouTube <laughs> yes. and podcasts and just surge <laughs> us into the the stratosphere of monetization. Um, on that note, let's let's shutter down. I have a I have a hard out for some family stuff, but we had a good hour there, Eric. Good stuff. Everybody settle down. Episode eight. Comment, like, subscribe here. YouTube podcast. Share the channel. Share the show if you like the show. Tell your friends about it. Put it in your group text and all that. Great stuff, Eric. We will a couple things we didn't get to, but we had a good hour and uh, we'll have a whole lot more to talk about next week.